From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Greta Johnson, and this is the Nerdette Book Club. It's just like a regular book club, except sometimes the author stops by. It is the month of February, and our book this month is Kylie Reed's second novel. It's called Come and Get It, and it mostly takes place at the University of Arkansas, and there are a number of different characters, but the book largely centers around Millie. She's a fifth-year senior at the University of Arkansas, and she has been saving to buy a house in town. It's kind of a big dream, but it seems like it might actually happen. One of her jobs is as an RA at a nearby dorm where she oversees students in their shared living spaces. She becomes particularly entangled with the three students living in the rooms right next to her. And speaking of entanglements, there's also Agatha, a visiting professor who has come to campus to write a book about students and money. That is all I am going to say for now because this is a spoiler-free conversation. Kylie, welcome back to Nerdette. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to chat. I am so happy to talk about this book, largely because it stressed me out so much, like in the best possible way. You know, I really love a low-level dread in a novel, so that makes me very happy. (laughs) Thank you for stressed out. So I know that you extremely are not Agatha, but you also share like a pretty intense curiosity about money. I do. And I did interview a lot of people for this novel, a lot of students mm. included, but that is where Agatha and I diverge in our <laughs> journey. Um, I have always been really interested in the limitations that money puts on our lives, but also mm. how money shows up in everything from who we date to the clothing that we're wearing to the words that we're saying and just how young people navigate money and this really interesting place where they're becoming adults for the first time, Mm. but they're still supported by their parents sometimes. And they have this weird RA figure who's like a glorified, like underpaid babysitter. It just seemed like a really right place to explore money. So yeah. How did you think about money in your 20s? Oh man. Okay. I I saved all of it. (laughs) Did you? And so oh. I had lots of jobs. I worked at Godiva Chocolate in oh. the mall, <laughs> both in Arizona and in New York. And then when I was a junior and senior in college, I was nannying 20 hours a week and oh just saving, saving. And sure, saving is good, but I kind of wish I'd had a little bit more fun. Like there are mm. items of clothing that I didn't buy and I still think about them. I'm like, who oh, would wow. I have been? If I had gotten oh, that, <laughs> I know I was just a little bit too afraid to spend anything. That's where I was. Where were you at with money in your 20s? Oh, my God. You know, I remember literally thinking the phrase, I have to spend it all before it's gone, which and like <laughs> and catching myself thinking it and knowing it was fucked up. But it was still, you know, like it's going to go somewhere. So I might as well have fun with it. So I think I was probably just like on the I needed you as a friend. I needed someone to tell me. Just it's going to go away. This isn't real. This is a simulation. Right, Just right. Like spend like, your little money anyway. You <laughs> yeah. know what is life? Here we are. Like whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wish I'd had a little bit more of that for sure. But I was a saver. Mm-hmm. I wasn't trying to buy a house like Millie or anything. But right, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I do think there's probably like it would. It's interesting to unpack the privilege in that too, right? Like, I also always had parents who I knew would be able to help me if I needed it. You know, it's like right. there's so much variance in all of that stuff all the time. It's so complicated. It's super complicated, and it's it's not even. You know, I I was taking German lessons in college, and I had a tutor after, and there was this one exercise that we were doing where she would read a passage to me about like a profile of a person. And Mm -hmm. then I would say back to her in English what the story was about. 
And so mm-hmm. she read one p- profile to me and it was about this young person who's a student. And then she said to me, okay, what is their job? And I said, they don't have a job. And she said, Ooh, try again. Like, what's their job? And I said, they don't mm-hmm. have a job. They're in school. And she said, that is a That's job. their job. Mm-hmm. We see that completely differently here than in yep. other parts of the world. And I think that that gets into the psyche of people like me and and Millie who don't already see what they're doing as very difficult at the job. Mm. And they're trying to do a million other things. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So something this book brings up is that idea of, you know, like the question around what would happen if we were all just more open about money? I, I wonder that too. I also just want to, well, let me caveat this and say that being raised to not talk about money or people who feel very comfortable about it, I don't think that there's a right or wrong way to approach living within a class society. Mm-hmm. Like I completely mm-hmm. understand when people don't want to talk about money because they've been raised that way or they feel it's impolite or they're being nosy or it's gauche for sure. whatever reason it is. But I do think that talking about money shapes the world in a really interesting way. On a really superficial level, if you have friends who are in the same job that market that you're in, knowing what they're getting paid will help you negotiate for more, knowing what that market salary range is that you can help, you know, yourself and other people and also make sure that jobs are paying people what they should be paid. Um, If you're paying a ton of rent and realizing it's way too high or too low, it might be good to know what other people are being paid as well. The biggest thing, though, is that we, in speaking about money and feeling like you can't do it, I think that there's a connection between the money you're getting and who you are as a person. And those things are completely irrelevant. Like Mm. the problem is never you making more than your friends. It's that there's inequality and you can make significantly more than your friends for working just as hard. So I Mm. think that talking about numbers in that sense does take away some of the connection between your value as a person and like your monetary value as a person. And I also just think it's super interesting to know exactly how much all the time. (laughs) Well, I think there's also like a deservingness aspect of it that's often like completely unfounded, but that's so deeply ingrained in all that stuff. Completely. I mean, whether you are working your butt off or not, you deserve healthcare. So like it doesn't matter what, you know, the, the complications of how hard you're working versus not. There are certain things as a human that you just deserve. But of course- Money and capital conflates all of these things into, a, oh, I earned this. I deserve it. She shouldn't get that. And and that's just how we're conditioned to thinking so often. Yeah. It's interesting, too. It makes me think about something that came up in an English class once for me in college that I keep meaning to, like, dig into. But it was the idea that in English, more than other languages, we like the word value is a perfect example. Like so many of our sort of like positive attribute words are also money words. Which oh yeah. Is really interesting. Mm-hmm. She's and super fast. That's yes. so rich. Like everything is so money centered. Yes. And when you're dating someone, when you're looking at schools, like even just when someone says, oh, that's a bad school, you know that there's money in their their depiction of that school or he mm. comes from a good family. You know exactly right. what they're hinting at without saying those words about money. These were all the things that I wanted to uncover in this novel um, through the eyes of young people living on their own for the first time. 
Yeah. So um, speaking of those young people, Millie, her big dream for post-grad isn't like that far-fetched, right? Like she wants to own her own home, which (laughs) these days does seem more and more far-fetched. But, you know, it's not like she's looking for like a giant three-bedroom, like it's a modest home, this one that she's looking at, which I think is a really interesting driving force. I'm curious why you chose that for her. Sure. So Millie has had a number of different jobs from being, you know, a camp counselor to being an innkeeper at a bed and breakfast to being an RA. And she's always slept where she works. She's used to being Mm. the person who's on call and at a place making you feel very hospitable when you arrive. So I think the idea of paying rent to her seems like she'd be moving backwards in her like career trajectory. Mm -hmm. She wants to have a place that is just hers for the first time. And so she also spends a year at home taking care of her mother and becomes pretty addicted to house hunters and tiny homes. And she thinks this would be really great. She's someone who loves projects and wants to make a great space for herself and build something. So having a home is a big dream for her. I also think that a house for Millie would cure her of what she views as mistakes in her in her late upbringing in terms of college. Millie mm. lived in Arkansas for a year after she graduated from high school so she could earn in-state tuition. So she started, she considers, a year late. And then she missed another year when her mother was sick. So she feels like she's a little bit late to adulthood. And a house would represent fixing all of those problems and entering the world of being a grown-up. Mm. So one thing I really loved about this book is that you really take your time with backstory. We're working with a number of different characters and some we learn about pretty early on, but I think about like Kennedy is a good example. She's one of the girls on Millie's floor and, and she's a mess, but we don't learn why until pretty far into the book. Um, how did you decide like who got the embellishments when? It's a lot of piecing things together and moving things around. But in terms of someone like Kennedy, she's coming into this new dorm situation and all the young women are meeting each other for the first time. I wanted Kennedy to be partially seen through the eyes of her roommates for as long Mm. as possible. Where you're like, wait, why is this girl acting like this? She's just a little weird and she has so much stuff. Why is she like this? I think that you know, a lot of people talk about empathy in novels. I kind of wanted to take away some of the empathy from Kennedy in Ooh. the beginning because I know she needs a lot of it, but I wanted she her does. to be seen as just like pure roommate where you're like, man, why isn't this girl cleaning her dishes? She has so much <laughs> stuff because despite her her traumatic past, she is still just a young person who you have to live with. And so I mm. wanted to keep her a bit pure and contemporary at first before I showed too much about who she was before. And with Agatha and Robin, we learn about them pretty early on to show why Agatha comes to Arkansas the way that she does. Um, But Millie, our star, we learn about her backstory pretty quickly and we stay pretty much in scene with her throughout. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. It's so interesting. I feel like, and this is a common thread that I see with your first book, Such a Fun Age too. I feel like your characters, your scenes, your situations occupy this really interesting space where like people do usually mean pretty well and nothing like really horrific or violent happens, but it's still like bad. (laughs) I feel like that's pretty common to the circumstances that I hear at school or eavesdrop, Mm. you know, where it's things that um, 
you shouldn't go to jail for that. But man, that's really not, not good. And I really do like that that middle ground within a novel. Um, mm. I also think that college is this time where everything is happening for the first time. Mm. So it all seems a little bit magnified and you have nothing to mm-hmm. compare it to. So those moments stick out a little bit more than they normally would. You mentioned interviewing students for this book. What were some of the more memorable conversations you had? Oh, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, I interviewed a lot of different people from RAs to RDs to uh, Starbucks managers to students that I had in my classes when they weren't my students any longer, mm. optometrists, twirlers. I interviewed a lot of people. <laughs> For this novel in particular, I did not want to satirize young people. I wanted to just mm. portray them in the way that they are. Um, I'm sure you guys know as as podcasters that when you are transcribing something, people never really speak chronologically, they go off and on and they say like and um, and they have little, you know, verbal asides. So it was a challenge to portray young people with accuracy and also at the top of their intelligence. And so it just became a balance of making sure that my characters worked in the book the the same way that they do in real life, which is saying something really clever and bright one moment and something absolutely bananas on the next page. Um, I'm happy to say that a lot of the students I interviewed were so excited at the idea of something they said going into the novel. And so they have, they have, I have their full support, which is really wonderful. There were certain things that just went straight into the novel. A young woman did tell me that she got paid from her dad's dental office, but she didn't do anything. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, "It's he gives us like a practice paycheck, even though we don't do oh my anything. God. And I said, I'm so sorry, but I feel like, is that fraud? Because it sounds like fraud. And she was like, no, no, it no, it's totally <laughs> Deeply fraudulent. Exactly. So that did go straight into the novel. Um, I would protect their identities at all costs because they mm. were so generous with me. Um, and I'm really just appreciative that they told me smart, wonderful, terrible things all at the same time. <laughs> so did you come up with the phrase fun money or was that another one? It's so good. That, I think that was mine. These were four mm. years ago, if you can believe. Oh, yeah. Um, I think that was mine. Another one that I took straight from someone's mouth was I interviewed a baton twirler and mm-hmm. I asked her what you do when you drop the baton. And she said, first, you make sure your coach didn't see it. Then you lean down. You never, you squat down. You never bend over. And then you just go on like nothing ever happened. And that went straight into the novel and just really shaped Kennedy's entire experience. Yeah. Let's take a quick break. And then we will have more with Kylie Reed in just a minute. Before we get back to our conversation with Kylie, I have a real quick little favor to ask you listening right now. In this Friday's episode, we want to feature a bunch of voicemails of like little audio Valentines. Now this could be for Valentine's Day or Galentine's Day. Essentially, we are just inviting you to use the podcast as a way to shout out someone who is dear to you. So If you're into this concept, all you have to do is just record yourself on your smartphone and then email the file to nerdappodcast at gmail.com before or on this coming Thursday. So something else this book made me think a lot about and like money is definitely a part of it, but so are class and race and youth and beauty and like fill in the blank things. (laughs) But the idea of like power dynamics and how some of them are really obvious, but also how much they can shift even in one interaction. Mm Mm-hmm. 
power I dynamics are huge fascinating. in this. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think when, on the surface, the power dynamic between Agatha and these students is uh, is and should yes. be discussed because she definitely wields her power in a way that is a bit inappropriate. But there's a lot of other dynamics within the book where power is is used in funny ways. Kennedy comes in so lonely, just wanting to really make friends. And she has two roommates who couldn't be any more different than each other. Mm-hmm. There's Peyton, who is one of the only Black students on the floor. And mm-hmm. she's not warm. She's pretty awkward. And she comes from a lot of money. She's mm-hmm. also in a room with Tyler, who is incredibly socially muscular and cool and buys cool things and says the right things and is a bit catty and is truly middle class. So in this situation, uh, Kennedy is really drawn to Tyler's social and like cultural cachet. Tyler knows how to be in the world as a collegiate person. And Kennedy is just dying for some of that power. And that makes her not give two shits about Peyton. She just says, like, this person is, mm-hmm. is leftover. And I don't want anything to do with her. Mm-hmm. So I think it's interesting in situations like that how money is present, but it's the the cachet of cultural finances that really drives Kennedy's decision. Oh, my God. Did it happen to you when you came up with the title of this where the song got stuck in your head every time you thought about it? Or is that just me? <laughs> okay. You know what's funny about that is when I was online dating – that was my tagline. <laughs> I don't know who I thought I was. <laughs> it said like my name and then it said, when you're ready, come and get it. Nah, nah, nah. Oh my God. <laughs> what was I doing? so amazing. <laughs> I mean, I'm married work, now. Right? It worked. So yep. It's, it's all fine. good. <laughs> yeah. I haven't heard that song in a while, but I liked it at the time. Come and get it was the idea of my very brilliant agent, Claudia Ballard. I had always called the novel Suey as in Wupik Suey, which is the Arkansas mm chant. But then when I would say the name to people, people would say, Shuey, Suey. They couldn't quite get it. And Claudia, one day we were texting and she said, what does Suey mean? It means like, here, pig, come and get it. And I said, what's that? And there it was. Yeah. Oh my God. That's so funny. So I mentioned your first book, Such a Fun Age. I loved it very much. It was actually Nerdette's first monthly book club pick. I'm curious how you see that come and get it is in conversation with it. I think about, I mean, obviously money stuff is huge. There's a lot of power stuff happening. What do you think? Oh, man. Um, It's funny because when I was writing come and get it, I did not focus on this connection, but I definitely have a penchant for odd caretaker jobs. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about that. Young women. So Amira has a more traditional job as a domestic worker. Millie has a job as like a strange caregiver to these young women in a dorm. I think more importantly, I'm interested in jobs that are seen as temporary and a gateway to your more official job. I'm putting quotes on that. Um, Mm -hmm. Where it's young people who are always on call, who are working super hard and getting paid really immediately. I'm very interested in that. Um, I'm super interested in dialogue. I think that you can see that both such a funny agent and this one. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to make anyone feel uncomfortable ever, but I it's <laughs> desire of mine to depict something so accurately that you almost have to step away from it because you recognize it too much because that's mm-hmm. what I love to read as well. And personally, I want to do something different a little bit every time. 
And hopefully next I do something different as well. I don't want to say too much about it because I'm just starting, but you'll see something different from me next time around. I can't wait. Oh my gosh. Well, Kylie, thank you so much for coming on. This was such a treat. This is always a treat. Thank you so much, Brad. I appreciate it. that's it for this week you know the drill read the book and let us know what you think about it you can also of course send us a voicemail before you finish the book too especially if there's a moment where you're like oh my god just pick up the phone and send it over we are ready to hear from you just record yourself with your voice memos app and then email the file to nerdatpodcast at gmail do it before we tape on friday february 23rd and you might just find yourself in an episode of nerd book club We've already announced our March and April picks too. In March, we are reading Kaveh Akbar's Martyr, which is phenomenal. And in April, we are reading Beauty Land by Marie Helene Bertino. These are some of my favorite books that I've read in a while. So I'm really excited to read those along with you. So we would love to hear from you. Nerdette is produced by me and Anna Bauman at WBEZ in Chicago and is part of the NPR Network. And our executive producer is Brendan Banaszak. We will see you on Friday.